from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger of Pardes Alam. This week, Bechalotecha. This week, Rabbi Michael Hatton discusses Bechalotecha. Rabbi Michael Hatton is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Michael Hatton. The Parsha of Nassau concluded with the offerings of the tribal princes. In celebration of the dedication of the Mishkan, these twelve leaders each brought an identical gift, two silver bowls that contained fine flour as a meal offering, one small golden bowl of fragrant incense, and a series of sacrificial animals consisting of oxen, rams, sheep, and goats. These offerings were in addition to their more utilitarian gifts presented at the same time namely the six covered wagons and the twelve hitched oxen to be used by the Levites in fulfilling their task of transporting the Mishkan and its various fittings during the course of the journey to the land of Canaan. The theme of the Mishkan's completion and dedication is amplified by the opening of this week's Parshat Baha Lotcha because it begins with an injunction directed towards Aharon to kindle the golden menorah of the Mishkan. The command to the high priest concludes with a fleeting but emphatic description, highlighting the special process of how the menorah was fashioned and Moshe's care in executing the work with precision. Now this is the manner of the making of the menorah. It was made out of beaten gold. From its largest to its smallest features, it was beaten work. In exact accordance with the image that God showed Moshe, so did he fashion it. Chapter 8, verse 4. Now the Parsha revisits a previous discussion that had been interrupted by the matter of the Mishkan's dedication. The Levites who had earlier been counted and assigned by clan to their tasks are officially invested in place of the firstborn. From now on, it will be the Levites who will minister in the sacred areas of the Mishkan and they will be responsible for its maintenance. Formerly, God had sanctified Israel's firstborn at the time of the final plague in Egypt, for he had spared them from the destroying angel that struck down all of the Egyptian firstborn, but now he had chosen the Levites in their place. And while the text of the Torah itself is somewhat circumspect on the matter of the exchange, the early rabbis linked the matter to the events of the golden calf, there the people of Israel worshipped a glittering fetish and offered sacrifice before it, but the tribe of Levi remained true to Moshe and to God. Exodus chapter 32, verse 26. The firstborn, who themselves had earlier ministered to God as Israel stood at Sinai and accepted the Torah, were now firmly rejected for their presumed role in the villainy of the golden calf. 
finally, the narrative of our Parsha redirects our focus to the book of Bamidbar's primary point, the beginning of the journey towards the land. And just as the celebration of the Passover first inaugurated the dawn of redemption from servitude in Exodus chapter 12, so too now the journey from Sinai to the Promised Land, from potential to actualization, is introduced by the people's observance of the Paschal Rites. Bamidbar chapter 9 verses 1 through 5 reads as follows. God spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year since their exodus from the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel fulfill the Passover in its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month at evening shall you fulfill it at its appointed time. In accordance with all of its statutes and its laws, you shall fulfill it. Moshe spoke to the people of Israel to fulfill the Passover. They fulfilled the Passover on the fourteenth day of the first month at evening in the wilderness of Sinai in accordance with all that God commanded Moshe, just so did the people of Israel do. The vigilant student will notice, of course, that this narrative concerning the Passover is chronologically out of place. For the events surrounding the wilderness celebration of that holiday preceded the census recorded at the opening of the book, by at least two weeks. Remember that the book of Bamidbar opened with a census that was undertaken on the first day of the second month of the second year since their exodus from Egypt. The observance of the Passover took place towards the middle of the first month. The actual breaking up of the camp and the commencement of the journey on the other hand, took place on the 20th day of the second month of the second year since the Exodus. Bimidbar chapter 10, verse 1. At that point, the divine cloud lifted from the Mishkan and began to move towards the wilderness of Paran. Chronologically, then, the events associated with the beginning of Sefer Bimidbar that took place over the course of approximately two months, are as follows. Number one, the celebration of the Passover, as recorded in chapter 9. Number two, the taking of the census, as recorded in chapter 1. Number three, the observance of the Passover rites for those that were unfit during the first morn month, chapter 9. And number four, the commencements of the journey towards the land in chapter 10. Investing the Levites that we spoke of earlier, since it was dependent upon the census numbers, must therefore have happened before the observance of the Pesach. Why does the Torah then relate the episodes out of sequence? Why didn't the book begin? with the very first event of the second year since the Exodus, namely the Pesach observance. From a structural perspective, 
we may guess that the purpose of the Torah's jogging of the events is didactic. It seeks to link the journey towards the land with a celebration of the Passover. This would be a conscious evocation of the Exodus. As stated above, the people could only leave Egypt after they had slaughtered the Paschal Lamb. The emotional and spiritual work of liberating themselves from the corrosive effects of Egyptian bondage was initiated by the people of Israel with their readiness to observe the rites of the Passover. In so doing, as it were, they declared war on Egyptian idolatry, as well as their own spiritual apathy, readying themselves to accept God's word. And in a similar vein, preparing to now traverse the barren wilderness and reach the gates of the promised land, Israel again celebrates the Pesach, this time readying themselves to embrace a new dimension of their destiny. In the aftermath of this Passover, they will leave behind the certainty of Sinai and enter the foreboding wilderness on a journey of self-discovery and actualization. Sinai was about receiving God's laws and accepting them, but Canaan is about observing them as a functioning nation. In essence, the transition from the one to the other is accomplished through the vehicle of the Passover observance. For it, more than anything else, speaks of Israel's unique national calling. This might be the straightforward understanding of the chronological anomaly, but Rashi, basing himself on earlier rabbinic tradition, directs the discussion to a decidedly different place. Rashi comments on chapter 9, verse 1. In the first month, the passage that is at the beginning of the book of Bamidbar was not actually communicated until E.R. the second month. This teaches us that events in the Torah are not necessarily related chronologically. Why didn't the book begin with this section concerning the Passover? It is because it speaks disparagingly of the people of Israel. During the entire 40-year period that the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they did not offer a single Passover sacrifice besides this one recorded in chapter 9. For Rashi then, the mention of the Passover observance now, which seemingly complements Israel for their fidelity to God, is actually an understated critique. This is because, as fate would have it, the people of Israel did not celebrate the Passover again until the entry into the land of Canaan. The events associated with the spies mentioned in Parshat Shlach, ultimately condemned Israel to almost 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And during that whole time, the people of Israel did not perform the rites of the Passover at all. 
In essence, then, Israel only observed the Passover twice during the period of these 40 years, on the eve of the exodus from Egypt and on the eve of the exodus from Mount Sinai. Only 40 years later, after they had crossed the River Jordan and entered the land, would they observe the Passover again as reported in the book of Joshua, chapter 5. Bearing all of this in mind, and animated by a healthy dose of hindsight, Rashi therefore believes that for Sefer Bimidbar to have opened with the episode of the Passover may have been chronologically more accurate, but thematically more disconcerting. Why open the book of Bamidbar so inauspiciously with a reference to an event that calls to mind other failures? Of course, Rashi's underlying assumption is that the Passover was not observed by the people during the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. He therefore feels that the mention of the celebration in our Parsha is a veiled allusion to the fact that it was not practiced again during the entire generation during the entire duration of that generation's lifespan. While the text itself does not provide us with explicit support for Rashi's view, it does provide us with solid circumstantial evidence. We know, for example that the performance of the Passover sacrifice by a male depends upon his circumcision. Any male who is uncircumcised cannot offer the Passover sacrifice. This is stated explicitly in Exodus chapter 12. We also know from the description preserved in Joshua chapter 5 that the people of Israel carried out a mass circumcision on the eve of their departure from Egypt, but then neglected the rite entirely while they wandered in the wilderness. Only after they had safely crossed the Arden and entered the land did they renew the covenant of circumcision with another mass event, and only then did they offer the, offer the Pesach as discussed above. It is therefore reasonable to link the two seemingly unconnected episodes. As long as circumcision went unobserved, the paschal sacrifice went unobserved as well. As soon as the rite of circumcision was renewed, the people of Israel also fulfilled the Pesach. This association between the paschal lamb and circumcision is itself more than just a cursory link. After all, both observances have a pronounced blood element. Both serve an identifying function, singling out the performer as a member of a larger communal or national grouping. Both introduce the serious consequence of karet, or spiritual excision for non-fulfillment, and both reinforce a conceptual connection to the land of Israel. The setting for the Paschal Lamb, 
notwithstanding the precedence of Egypt and Sinai, is actually the land of Israel. While circumcision is introduced in the Torah as the special sign of the covenant between God and our ancestors Abraham and Sarah, the covenant in which God promised the land to their descendants forever. Genesis chapter 17. It would be therefore quite natural to assume that if circumcision is not being carried out, then the Paschal Lamb is also not being offered. Rashi's interpretation not only alerts us to another reading of the text, to, but to a profound moral principle as well. Sometimes it is necessary to recall an episode that is disturbing, to mention a fact that is disparaging, or to indicate a reality that casts a person or a group in an unfavorable light. But there's no need to revel in such disclosures. If matters must sometimes be stated, even forcefully, concerning failure or fiasco, then at least let them not be gleefully trumpeted from the rooftops. The Torah, after all, preserved the honor of Israel by burying the intimation of their downfall under a number of layers of implication and by positioning that story less prominently than the natural chronology would have dictated. In fact, only the careful reader would have been able to connect the dots at all. If this is true about how we relate to the nation of Israel, Rashi seems to be saying, then it must be true about relating to individual members of that nation as well. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Hatton. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pradesh from Jerusalem.